Castro introduced me. Uh, I am Daniel, or if you want to uh, know my first name, it's Anugra. It's pronounced Anugra. It's said Anugra. Uh, and uh, I am coming here as a figurehead, in a sense, for my family who uh, sends you their best wishes. And a little bit more about our mission in Nepal. We have 72 churches, and, and the amazing thing is these churches are people, uh, they're not big churches, they're people from, uh, you know, they usually are from like 10, 12 people going all the way up, and our biggest church is 152 people. And so this is a church planting movement that is because people are wanting to go out. And so I see that here, I see here in this church that same desire and same um, calling. And so if you will turn with me to Isaiah 53, um, we'll be looking out of 9 and 10. Um, read with me. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and we call for the Holy Spirit to be here as, as he imbues us and as he illumines the text for us, as we see what you want us to see. Lord, as I preach, Lord, give in, uh, give me the words to say and give us hearts to hear, Lord God, ears to hear. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would move in this text in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, last time, I'm assuming, you talked about every other, uh, coming all the way down to verse 8. Uh, where we talked about the different aspects, about the suffering servant, about how he has come down from the heavens and he has come down here to dwell with us mortal man. And he has borne our grief and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the prevalence and the desire that we have for this healing, this guilt offering to be taken. And so he was oppressed not just by the people at that time, but us in totality. We forced him into this. And so we're coming here. And at verse 8, it has this amazing line where he says, He was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah here is looking back. He's, he's looking forward. He's calling forward. And he's saying, He will be killed. Cut off the land of the living. For me, for us, the promised people. And so throughout history, Israel is the promised people. Israel has been the promised nation. In fact, earlier on, Isaiah states of how corrupt Israel has been. In fact, that's the reason why he has been writing this entire book to chronicle, in a sense, what is happening, to uh, predict what will happen in the future, to prophesize what will happen in the future. And here we come to the death of the servant. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. 
So what's amazing is when you look into the future, when you look into the Gospels and you see how Jesus is killed, right? they killed him like a common uh, prisoner, like he, us, like a criminal. And what the Romans did to their criminals was that they would throw away the body in an open grave. And this is common among a lot of different cultures and a lot of dictatorships in recent history. Like, if you think about Hitler, he killed all the Jews and all the political prisoners and all the people that he did not like and then buried them in the open grave so that they would not be remembered. And so the Romans would do the same exact thing. They would take criminals or political prisoners, they would kill them, and they, they would lie them out for, so that they would not be remembered, so that they would not be made martyrs. Or maybe even if you were in that world, you would make shrines praying to these uh, guys, and you would be basically coming there. And so that is the consequences of criminals, that they would be buried in the open grave. So we see here, they plan to make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In fact, when you translate it straight from the Hebrew, uh, there's a lot of different uh, uh, ways of translating this. Some might say that this is, uh, well, you know, like when you look into the Bible and you look further, you know, Jesus says, you know, it is, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So is, is this talking about Jesus being buried in a manner that is demeaning and degrading? And degrading. And in fact, the Jewish leaders would like this to happen to Jesus. In fact, Satan would take extreme pleasure in seeing the Son of God be buried like this. In fact, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, wrote that uh, on this matter, he wrote that, Let him that blaspheme God be stoned, then hung a day, and buried ignominiously and in obscurity. 1 King 13, 12, uh, 1 uh, King 13, verse 22 says, As a curse, your body shall not come to the tomb of your father. So not being buried with your father in the Jewish culture is a curse. So all these Jewish leaders, the Jewish empire, the, the leaders at large would like Jesus to die a common death, a criminal's death. <laughs> A servant who was killed like a criminal was supposed to be buried like one. Enter into this picture, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin, who was the governing body of the religion of Judaism at that time, who in Mark 15, he asked Pilate, Pontius Pilate, hey, can I have the body? And Pilate uh, gives it to him. Joseph and John, if you look at chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, he spends money on spices and oils and bandages beyond what a normal carpenter could afford. So here we go. So the world wants Jesus to die a common death, a criminal death, be buried like a criminal. But rather, I, I say to you that this death is not because of his social, cultural, class differences, but in the manner in which he was treated. His death was rich. 
And so Robert Culver notes this um, in his uh, in his book on this, he says, The treatment of the corpse of Jesus had nothing to do with the atonement. His death accomplished that. After the soldier's spear was thrust into his side, wicked, violent men were not allowed to touch him again. In the Roman crucifixion process, what they would do is they would get these huge hammers and they would basically... Uh, when the guy, when when the criminals on the cross, they would basically knock their lower legs out. It's something called the crucifragrum. They would take this hammer and break the lower leg. And when they were coming up to Jesus, they saw that he was dead. And just you know, to do their due diligence, they just pierced him with a spear. And so here, Christ is fulfilling Psalms 34, 20, and except and Exodus. 1246, where it says in Exodus 1246 uh, about the Passover lamb and what, what is done to the Passover lamb, which is the tendons and the legs are not broken. In Psalms uh, 34, we see that the legs are not broken. Right? Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the Messiah even in his death. In the New Testament, we see that this sacrifice has to be a sinless victim. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter 1.19, it says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Do you think that God would accept a lamb who has been broken? No. He would only accept one who is sacrificed in fullness. He is one who is without blemish and without sin. This is the constant testimony of Christ. If you look at 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have it and uh, advance with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation of our sin and does not forget. Ours only, but for the sins of uh, the whole world. And you know that he appeared to take away sins. In him there is no sin. So we know that Christ is the sinless one. That he needs to be like the sinless uh, goat, the sinless ram that the Israelites would offer. We see even fuller the sinless nature of Christ. Let's look at verse 9 again where it says, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. If we look at the word violence in Hebrew, the original word comes from Hamas, which is an actively used term today in the U.S. military, which, or in the news. They are an active, hostile group. They, they, are, they are pulling up this imagery of us of terrorism and, um, and active hostility, killing. And so here, if we look at Proverbs 10, uh, 6 uh, and 11, it says blessings are on... Uh, sorry, uh, when we look at this, it is an active hostility that is planned or performed against people. If you look at Genesis 45, uh, 44, 5, when, uh, when there are blessings to be put down, Levi and his brother, they're called people of war. This is performed against people, the violence of war, and a characteristic of sinful life in this world. 
Imagine that you are being tortured like Christ. Someone is beating you with a whip. Someone is trying to make you carry this cross. What is your innate desire? Your innate desire is to lash out. Imagine even in the home. Imagine uh, a little child. You tell them, hey, do this. And you catch them on the wrong day. You might get a violent reaction. You might have troubles with a relationship and something might be off and you might react violently in that moment. It is something that is characteristically and intrinsically human. Our culture is actively seeking this violence. Right? One of uh, my favorite movies is Rocky uh, from a long time ago. And Rocky, you know, like, there's this scene where he, you know, like, he's just being punched down and pummeled. And what's our tendency? It's to punch back. That's our desire. That's our hope. That's our thing. We are not people of God. We are people of Hammurabi. An eye for an eye. We take what is mine. You, know, you get yours, and I get mine. And Jesus did the reverse of Bible. Luke 23 3 says that Pilate himself looked at this man and he said, I find no guilt in this man. And so, Jesus here actively did the opposite of what we would do. Now, let's look at the word deceit here. Jesus, the servant here, furthermore had no deceit in his mouth. This is the wickedness of heart, this ulterior motive, this deceitfulness exposed in words. And so earlier today, I had, I had uh, the experience of getting a ticket. It was lovely, and it was fantastic. And I will tell you, I would have had choice words if, if I wasn't preaching on this passage. <laughs> but that is just intrinsically us. That is intrinsically us. That is our human characteristic. Someone talks back to you, you talk back to them. Someone says something mean and nasty about you, you say something mean and nasty about them. I would have choice actions and choice words for anyone doing any of these things against me. This act of violence and deceit shows us the total guiltlessness of the servant. This is an outward behavior of him not acting on violence and the inward behavior of him not thinking deceit. He did not have that poison in his mouth in either deed or word. Jesus was guiltless. The servant is guiltless. In fact, this sinful tongue is especially highlighted. If you'll turn with me back to Isaiah 3, uh, 8. <coughs> Isaiah is looking back and he's talking about the people of Israel. He's saying, um, he's saying here in Isaiah 3, 8. Uh, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah had fallen because their speech and their deed are against the Lord defying his glorious presence. Isaiah, of all people, knew that this had to be a perfect person. Because Jerusalem, the city of God, the city on the hill, the, the light of the world, quote-unquote, could not speak well. And in verse... In chapter 6, verse 5, when we hear this proclamation by Isaiah, as he is saying, 
Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean, unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We are unworthy, and we see how worthy the servant is. Perfect. When we're in front of God, when we're in front of Jesus, are we the ones who say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. No, we, we tend to say, He's probably done something worse. He's, he's probably said something. But rather, this is the moral majesty that is essential in a true substitute for sinners. Romans 3 uh, verses verses uh, 25 to 26 talks about propitiation of our sin. That for our sins to be placed upon the Lamb, it needs to be spotless and without blemish. This moral majesty, he needs to have so much goodness in him, so much guiltless in him, that it is majestic. So now all of our sins are now placed upon him. And Jesus accepted the punishment. Because as our substitute, he was acting as if he was guilty. Right? You might be looking at the Gospels and saying, why doesn't Jesus say anything? Why doesn't Jesus act? Doesn't he know that he's not guilty? Yes, he knows he's not guilty. Which makes him the perfect substitute. He is acting as he was guilty because he has taken on our sin. Our sin. We were judged and cannot answer to God at all. Romans 6, 23 states it perfectly. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus, our Lord. What are our wages? What do we deserve, people? Death. And so if you're here, and you're, you're, you don't know Christ, I say, like, the Bible spells it out for us. It says that our sins are deserving of death. Our sins are deserving an eternal separation from God, the goodness that is in God. And so I call upon you, Christ says, I, I stand at the door and I knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter. And I will eat with him and he with me. God has sent Jesus for you so that he might be made known to you. That the goodness that is there might be known for you. Let's look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has been put to grief. This points back to all that you've been hearing from uh, the latter half of Isaiah. Of, of Isaiah uh, 15, 13 uh, and 15. Where it says that he was... Uh, 52. Uh, that he was... Uh, he shall act wisely. He shall be high and exalted and lifted up. Now many were astonished. His appearance was so marred. He shall sprinkle the nation. And verses 4 to 6. All like we have turned astray. Isaiah is pointing back, saying, This is what the servant is doing. 
And in fact, if we look at verse uh, 4 to 6, we see what Christ has suffered. He has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, we stricken him esteem, smitten by God, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastised. This, this, well, do you think that Isaiah hadn't planned to make it, uh, in, uh, to, if Isaiah had plans to say that he would be hurt really badly, I, I think he would have written that. But no, he wrote it multiple times in multiple ways. Why? Because in the Hebrew, repetition points the importance. It amplifies the amount of suffering that he is facing. Right? Think about it. If you said that, oh, I'm smitten together with today with punishment, or I'm stricken with an illness, I've been afflicted with this, don't you think that's a strong enough word on its own to say, man, you're really in a bad place? No. This is pointing back to verse 14 where the servant's figure is so disfigured because of the suffering that he's placed. That he has faced. This is the totality of his suffering. And so when people might say, but Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. Jesus doesn't know. Look at Hebrews 12 too. Oh, sorry. Uh, look at Hebrews 4, uh, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. So think about the entire journey from uh, from the torturing all the way from the guilt from when he was delivered the verdict all the way to the cross. I think Jesus that expressed and experienced the entire expanse of the human emotion of suffering. Do you think that he was not grieved and betrayed when his disciples ran away from him? Do you feel that Jesus was not depressed because of that? Do you feel that Jesus did not have a physical ailment as he was beaten? As his wounds were showing his bones and muscles? Do you think that he did not feel physical ailments? Did he not feel all this temptation? Do you, on the cross, do you, do you not see that Christ was tempted? This is the Lord of glory. This is the Prince of glory on this cross. Do you think he was not tempted to think about coming off that cross, destroying everyone who had done this, and then planting down the flag of the new kingdom right then and there? Jesus was tempted. He faced the entire brunt of the human negative emotions. So, we can go to Christ. We can go to Christ because he knows our pain more than anyone else. Loss, suffering, depression, anger, hurt. He's there. He's felt it. Within that span of time, he's felt it. So when you go to the Lord in prayer, you're not going to a Lord who does not hear you. You're going to a Lord who hears you. He understands you. He empathizes with you. And then we move on. We see that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yes, this was God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't an accident. 
It's not a case of a good man caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. But what God had planned, willed, desired, and pleased to do for many sinners like you and me. This is what some might call the covenant of redemption. That God set out from the very beginning to send the Son. And the Son agreed, and the Holy agreed, Holy Spirit agrees to apply the benefits of those who believe. I, I like to imagine this kind of like at a diner setting, like Jesus and um, uh, God sitting right across another, the Holy Spirit kind of leaning against the bar stool, kind of hearing this conversation, and as you know, as God is saying, you've you got to do this. Buddy, you got to do this. And Jesus looks at God the Father and says, All right, I'll do it because I love them. And the Holy Spirit's on the side just looking at both of them and saying, Yeah, if you do this, I will, I will pour my benefits upon those you choose. And then as God the Father pushes this cup. And I like to think it's coffee because coffee is really bitter. And, and I, I, I still think coffee is pretty terrible. Uh, but God the Father pushing this cup to God, to, to the Son. As it is hot, as it has no cream, no sugar, just the bitterness of life, bitterness of sin. As he's pushing this to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, this is the full weight of bitterness. This is divine repercussion. This is all my anger and wrath in this cup that Jesus said, all right, I'll do it. And he does do it. There is divine repercussion for our sin. This is the eternal separation from God. And so this guilt offering, and as we look, it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This guilt offering is something that the servant must do. It represents a restitution or a reparation or a compensation, all the station's words, against the Lord's holy things and offenses against one's own neighbor. So not only is God, not only is Jesus satisfying the desires of the Father, but also satisfying our relationship with people around us. Sin has both social and spiritual dimensions. You don't get along well with your neighbor because of sin. Your sin, his sin, all of our sins. You don't get along well with God because of our sins and his perfection. The death of the servant satisfied the need of a sinful people before God and the needs and requirements of God in relation to his broken law and offenses to his holiness. It offended his holiness so much. What can we do before a righteous God but to say, your justice is something that I, that I deserve. And your justice is eternal punishment. And so we, we like to think that we have a part in this. The servant is not bringing the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. We are not bringing the sacrifice, but we are participating to what has been provided in our behalf. This is, this is a, as a college student, one of my favorite meals is a potluck. It's, it's just my favorite meal because I do not have to bring anything on my behalf. I just enjoy the fullness and the goodness of the people around me who make food. And so we are not bringing anything. 
It has been provided for us. In Numbers 21.9, we see Moses uh, in this uh, narrative where the people of Israel have been bitten by snakes. And these are venomous snakes. And so he had to lift up this golden uh, rod with a golden snake on top. And whoever looks upon the snake will get relief from their venomous bite. And so we look upon Christ, upon the venomous bite that Satan has delivered to us, that sin had delivered to us. And we look to Christ and we are now filled with the benefits of Christ. In fact, this God's punishment of sin, some people might say, um, so God's, God's punishment of sin and his love is here. And in fact, some people might use this passage as a means of painting God as a, as a sadist. What father would love to see his son suffer? Let's turn to Ezekiel 33, 11, if you will. And I want to point this out because this is very important for all of us. Uh, and here it says, uh, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, Lord God, I have no pleasure in seeing the death of the wicked. So if God, the righteous and just, sees no pleasure in seeing the wicked suffer, how much more did he not like seeing Jesus, the sinless one, suffer? God did not take pleasure in the suffering. But the obedience and the heroicism and the self-sacrificing love of Christ. Isaiah 1, uh, in Isaiah 1, 11, we see as, as the people of Israel are sinning against God and they keep on offering these you know, bulls and goats as a means of reparation. It says, the Lord has no delight in the blood of bulls and goats, but he is satisfied in the servant's offering of <coughs> We cannot work enough. We cannot do enough to make God smile upon us. Make His face smile upon us. God's punishment of sin, His love for others, and His plan, and the ultimate establishment of His kingdom required the removal of guilt to do so, to form a holy this was a full sacrifice, church. This was not a half sacrifice. This was not a quarter of a sacrifice. One of my uh, old pastor friends, um, when I was young, he would tell the story of, uh, of, uh, uh, of a car, of buying a car, of, of uh, a man coming up and saying, hey, pastor, I'll buy you a car. And then uh, he said, okay. But here's one sense. Use that to buy the car for me. Well, <clears throat> then he didn't buy the car for you. There, there was a dilution there and a, 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 a corruption there. We can have no part of our own salvation because if we did not, then we could boast in our own work. The cross of Jesus covers the guilt of his people. Our unpaid debt, debt was paid. That could not be paid, was paid. It satisfied the demands 
of justice of God. Look further with me. Uh, in he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In the Jewish culture, uh, if you did not have children, that meant the Lord was not smiling upon you, that you were not getting the favor of the Lord, which is why when Job lost his children because of natural freak accidents and Satan, uh, people came up to him and said, you were sinning, man. And so, even in our culture, even in our church today, when we don't have children, people might look at you funny. They might think, well, the Lord is not smiling upon your face. This was a divine blessing. This was a mark of divine blessing. The Lord is pleased when you have offspring to move your name, your family forward. Isaiah 49, 21 says, um, it talks about Zion as, as Zion is saying, it's saying that, it's saying that, uh, where are all these children coming from? We know that Jerusalem has been barren. We know that Jerusalem is not providing us with these good children. But here, there is a promise of, uh, for Zion, it says, uh, but you will say, no oh wait, wrong, wrong verse, my bad. Uh, but anyway, in Zion, we who were sheep are now returning as children. The mountains of Zion, the halls of Zion is filled with children. Because we who were sheep are now returning as children. Moreover, in Christ, we're not just children, but we are princes. We are royalty. We who were dogs, who could not even get to the crumbs, are now sitting not only at the lower table, but at the highest table. Isaiah seems to be saying here that Jesus will rise, that this servant will rise from the grave. How can a man who has been cut off from the land of the living have children? How can he have an offspring? There's no doubt about it. Isaiah knows the servant will succeed. And when they say prolong the day, in fact, if you look into the Exodus narrative, one of the biggest key things is honor your father and your mother, for your days shall be long. Right there. there is an act of God blessing the Father. He is well pleased in his servant. And what does God do? He prolongs his day. In fact, uh, contrast this with his death and his victorious splendor. The guilt offering has been made. Now is the collection of the family. The rulers and principalities, if you look at Isaiah 14, Isaiah talks about the rulers in Sheol, in, in what is essentially hell, uh, and, and they are in hell. Death has dis dethroned them, but for the servant, death has enthroned him. It ushered him into sovereign dignity and power. Now, who is administrating the saving purpose of the Lord? And so, he who is rejected is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is now administering for us, who is now 
crying out for us. And so, applications. Trust in the Lord. When suffering comes, aim to be Christ-like. So we can see the practical application of living a life that is not venomous or vitriolic. Who is aiming to be not violent. But God is calling for us. He is making us more like Christ in community. And secondly, know that when suffering does come, submit to the will of God. Seek a desire to please God. Have a desire to please God. Because God's will is the best. And finally, do God's will. Matthew 28 says, make disciples of all nations. Proclaiming the word. Teaching the word. So here, in your community, preach the word. Do the word. Because, because if we do not... Actually, turn with me to Revelation 5. We'll look at that passage as it is inspiring for us to look at what God wants us as a body to be. Verses 9 and 10, which says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. That's our calling. Uh, let's look at 7-9, just a page over. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our calling as people of God is one, to preach, to teach, to live out life as willing. It is the active proclamation of the gospel. And so, before I end, I would like to uh, catalyze this with a memory or with a song. And so, in my own uh, terrible singing compared to your worship leader, I will do my best uh, um, as, as it will remind us of what Christ has done and what this entire hope is about. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. God, Jesus, we come before you as broken people and as people who desire to see your work be done on the earth. And Lord, as we see your suffering servant, as he had 
bled for us as he had suffered for us. Let us be people of that nature. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.